Reflections on Life at the End of Time, Part 6, the sixth talk in the series, was presented by Jack Crabtree on August 2, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. So I'm going to continue a series I started four or five weeks ago now, I guess, reflecting on life at the end of the present time. Early on in the series, I talked about how I do think that we are at the end of the present time. It would not surprise me to see Jesus return in my lifetime, certainly in my children's lifetime. And we may be a lot closer even than that implies. So we talked about that a little bit. And now I'm wanting to talk about so what? So what do we do? What should we focus on? How should we think about this? And last week, I suggested that, number one, now of all times, it's important for us to pursue wisdom. And I suggested last week that you can't have wisdom without having understanding. You can have salvation without having understanding. I think that's one of the things that the Bible teaches us. Our salvation is not contingent upon me knowing theology, knowing the Bible, mastering the Bible, having a thorough, coherent grasp of everything the Bible teaches. I can be highly ignorant and still be a child of God destined for eternal life. I think that's part of what the Bible teaches us. So my salvation is not contingent on my understanding, but my wisdom is. I can't have wisdom without having understanding. And then I began to suggest that I can't have understanding without understanding the Bible and what the Bible teaches. That's the source of understanding for us. What God has revealed to us through the scriptures is the truth about God, about me, about history, about God's promises, about God's projects that he's doing through history. If I'm going to understand all that, I need to understand what he's revealed in the scripture. So it's all the more important as we reach the end of time that we be wise, and it's all the more important then that we understand what it is that the Bible is teaching us. Now, why is it all that important that we be wise? I can get saved anyway, right? Well, that's true. But there have been times, recently, the first time I was exposed to it, in Gutenberg we read the theologian Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, and he was a very influential theologian back in the middle of the 20th century. He's the father of what's called neo-orthodoxy, so wasn't exactly an evangelical, wasn't exactly a Bible-believing Christian in the way that you and I would hopefully be. But nonetheless, he was a very astute student of the Bible, But what's most noteworthy about him is that he was a part of an effort to confront Hitler in Germany. He and Bonhoeffer and other people of that ilk left the German church and started what they called the Confessing Church at the time. And the distinction between the Confessing Church and the German Lutheran Church at that time is the German Lutheran Church had been completely totally co-opted by Nazi propaganda and had become one of the arms of the propaganda for the Nazi machine is by persuading the Christians that Christianity had evolved and had come to a point where if we really wanted to know what Christianity was all about, it had reached its apex here in Germany and Hitler's stuff was the stuff that Christianity was made of. Now, I can sit here, stand here from where I am now and go, you got to be kidding me. How on earth could you ever think Nazism was Christianity? Because they didn't have wisdom. If we don't know what our faith teaches, if we don't know what the Bible teaches, if we don't know the worldview that makes sense out of the gospel and out of all the teaching of the Bible, all kinds of bait and switch can happen. 
And all you have to do is replace a few assumptions and plug in new ones, and you can transform Christian faith into virtually anything that you want. The only people who are going to be immune from that, truly immune from that, are people who understand the revelation that we have in the Bible. So I think we're in store for seeing more and more of that kind of bait and switch offered to us as Christians in Christian culture. And I dare say much of American Christianity is going to buy it. And where they are today is not where they're going to be five years from now, ten years from now. They're going to be completely transformed, advocating things that none of us would ever dream that Christians would ever advocate for. At least we know from history it's not only a theoretical possibility, it has actually happened. And there's no reason it couldn't happen again. Are we going to be part of that, or are we going to be those that Daniel describes in the chapter I mentioned, who have insight and who shine like stars because we have insight and against the darkness and ignorance and folly of our culture, we stand out as people who get it and understand and know what God is up to and are not subject to the same kind of lies and deception as other people who may call themselves Christians but they don't know what it's all about. So all that's to say, I think we're at a time in history, and it's always important. Anybody, any time throughout history could always make the same claim I'm making. We need to understand our Bibles. We need to gain understanding. But it's all the more important, all the more incumbent upon us who live at the end of time, because we know from what the Bible teaches that the end of time is going to be a time of incredible deception. Okay. One of the biggest obstacles to understanding the Bible is our tendency to keep the teaching of the Bible at arm's length. And I want to spend several minutes talking about that. One of the ways we keep the Bible at arm's length is we refuse to close our mind around any conclusions about what the Bible is actually teaching. My first confrontation with this goes way back in college. I had gone away to college, raised in a Christian church, in a Christian home, Christian culture, Christian environment. I believed the Bible. I knew I was supposed to believe the Bible. I landed on a campus, a very heady intellectual environment, where I was in campus Christian organizations with a bunch of other Christian students that I just I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't understand them because we would confront some kind of controversy of doctrine Some Christians believe this, some denominations teach this, other denominations and other Christians teach this other thing, and there are all these alternative ways of looking at this out here. And I met many Christian students in those organizations who would say, you know, there are different perspectives on that question or that issue in that controversy. There's different perspectives on that, period. They're done with it. There's all kinds of different perspectives on that. And there's this voice that would well up within me, inside of me going, well, do you want to know which one's right? <laughs> Is that even relevant to you? There's a right one and a wrong one, right? Aren't you going to keep talking, keep thinking, keep dialoguing, keep researching, keep studying until you figure out which one of these you're convinced is right and why you're convinced that it's right? But they didn't go there. And I could never understand, why are you not asking what seems to me an obvious question? Which one of them is right? In retrospect, at the time, I wasn't smart enough, wise enough, experienced enough, old enough to have this perspective. But as I look back in retrospect, I think what was motivating them was not humility. Humility is wonderful. To measure my confidence and my conviction to to have a basis for confidence, to have a basis for conviction, to the extent that I lack a basis, I shouldn't pretend like I'm confident. I shouldn't be more confident than my reasoning and my evidence supports. That's humility, and that's a good thing and always will be a good thing. But they didn't even seem interested in solving the problem of their indecision. They liked their indecision. They were permanently in a state of indecision. Why? Not humility, fear. And more and more, I've come to see what an enemy of truth fear is. There's all kinds of different ways that fear manifests itself. One of them is, I'm afraid of being branded outcast, a heretic, a nut, 
There's all kinds of mean, nasty names that get called to people who don't exactly fit the mold and don't exactly conform to the Christian culture or the non-Christian culture, as the case may be. And since we're afraid of those mean, nasty names, being called those mean, nasty names, our fear makes us non-committal. I'm not going to commit because if I commit, then I make myself a target for someone who's going to blame me for believing what I believe. If I don't commit, I can always put distance between me and the criticism. Well, I'm not really, you know, I'm just toying with the idea. I'm just thinking about it. I'm just thinking it through, but I, I, I don't really believe it. So don't call me names, because <laughs> I haven't said that I believe that, right? It's an incredibly important strategy for dealing with that fear. The other one is just fear of being found wanting. That was a big deal for me. I've had to deal with that fear, just my own self-concept. I've come to a conclusion, and I got it wrong. I wasn't thinking as clearly as I should have. I didn't do my research as thoroughly as I should have. I didn't think as straight as I should. I've made some mistakes. And just the pressure that I put on myself, well, I don't want to make mistakes. I want to get this right. That can paralyze you. If you have to get it right, then you'll never commit because there's always the possibility you are fallible. Jack, you're not as smart as you think you are. (laughs) Jack, you're not as disciplined as you think you are. You haven't worked as hard as you ought to have worked. can always get it wrong. So if I'm afraid of getting it wrong, then I won't get it at all. I just won't make a commitment. I won't land. I won't make a judgment with any kind of confidence. The problem, of course, is that people who don't come to a conclusion don't learn. The only way to learn is to stick both feet on a position and then be put in a position where I have to see if it works. I have to see if it's defensible. I have to see if it's viable against the attacks and criticism of other people, against my own future study of the Bible as I look at more things. Does it hold up to scrutiny or does it not hold up to scrutiny? When it doesn't hold up to scrutiny, I learn what I didn't know. I learn how it was that I was not thinking rightly about the subject, and I grow wiser. I become more understanding of the biblical worldview precisely because I made a mistake. And now I know why I made a mistake, and I can fix it, and I can be the wiser for having made that mistake and been able to fix it. Now, if somebody came in in some reality TV show or something, and they gave you two pirate maps, two maps that took you to a pirate treasure, and there's lots of gold bullion on the other end of that, but one is a real map, and one is a phony map. I have two choices. I can go, I'm going to go with this one and see if you find the treasure, or you can sit there in anguish and debate and explain why it is that you're not going to make a choice because you don't have a sufficient evidence for making the choice between the two maps. You could do that, but why would you do that? <laughs> the payoff, if you get it right, is you get the gold bullion. In the case of the scriptures, the payoff, if I make a judgment and I get it right, is I've arrived at understanding I now understand what it is that the Bible says, what the Bible has taught me. And if I have made the wrong choice, sooner or later I'm going to find that out because it's not going to work. It's either going to run aground on the shoals of experience itself or further biblical study. Something is going to expose to me, you picked the wrong map, or in this case, you picked the wrong doctrine, Jack. You came to the wrong conclusion. The Bible doesn't teach what you just decided that it teaches. Some of you know I've made a lot of those wrong choices over the course of my life as a Bible teacher, but I'm not ashamed of that fact. I'm not God. I'm a human being groping, trying to find the truth, and it's through those mistakes that I've learned tons. I've learned all kinds of things I never would have learned. So all that's to say I would recommend that we emulate that position, that we go for it. I study my Bible, I do the best I can, and I land. I make a commitment. Here's what I think it's saying. But now make it work. Keep working and test your conclusion. Make sure it measures up against all the rest of the things the Bible teaches, against your experience and everything that you have to work with. But the worst thing we can do is be paralyzed by our fear into indecision. I don't think that works.
questions, comments on that? For those of you who might be new, this is a conversation rather than a... I may sound like I'm preaching, but I'm not. Yeah, I agree, because if you refuse to commit, it's safe, and you end up doing nothing, and that's not pleasing to the Lord, I think. Yeah, yeah. In college, I had a professor who had that same mode of operation. He was very popular, but he never came to a conclusion in any... He had all kinds of things to say, observations, but he would never land on anything. And that taking that class was had nothing to do with what I was really learning about while I was watching him about the importance of coming to a conclusion. And the one thing that I was thinking about coming to a conclusion is... You talk about it being a motivation of fear not coming to a conclusion. And I was thinking that it might be a sense of virtue, that in Mm. the realm of higher education, they have this sense of virtue if the more open-minded you can be. So the more open-minded that you are, the more virtue you have. So I see your point about fear, But I was also wondering if that could come to play. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That was a conclusion I reached about my fellow students back in the day. It always came with a kind of outward show of neutrality, intellectual respectability, highly nuanced thinking, sophistication. It just reeked of virtue. I am the enlightened one. You people who commit and actually believe something, you're like fanatical. You're fanatics. And I always felt like kind of a country bumpkin by comparison. As I wasn't nearly as sophisticated as they were. And I, I was half tempted to go, how do you do that? How do you get that sophisticated? But in retrospect, I realized, no, it's an insidious, diabolical obstruction to what a human being is supposed to do. We're supposed to close our minds around truth. And if we get it wrong, fix it. But we're not made to stay constantly neutral and tolerant and open. I remember when I went to Israel the first time, we had an Old Testament professor, Bruce Walkie, was our guide. And he was leading us in a study about the concept of fool in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, in the Hebrew. And he ta- I don't, this was a long time ago, I can't remember how many words for fool he looked at, but there are four, five, six different words that are translated fool. And one of them, I remember very clearly, he said, this concept is the concept of a person who is open to everything and believes nothing. That's a fool. But notice, especially in our day and age, in American culture today, exactly like you're describing, it's exactly that. It's that kind of fool, that kind of folly, who, especially in academic circles, is kind of held up as sort of the paragon of virtue. This is the kind of neutrality and open-mindedness and non-prejudicial attitude that, of course, the superior people have. But look at the important people in the Bible, how they wouldn't measure up to that. Who do you say that I am, Peter? Well, some people say this, and some people say that, and some other people say this. There's 15 different views of you, Jesus, and I think I'm going to write a book about 15 different views about who Jesus is. And I'll stay completely objective and non-committal, and I won't. He doesn't do that. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus was convinced that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They weren't sophisticated enough to know that you're not supposed to do that. Great point. Yeah, exactly. There was a case one time I was talking to my aunt. She's in her 90s somewhere. And uh, she grew up in a Lutheran family with my grandmother, went to catechism, church all the time. And it got, she kept saying, well, she got old and couldn't go to church. And she says, well, I guess I'll be like all your other heathens. And I'm listening to her talk, and finally I says, Joyce, have you ever read that Bible? Well, no, I've never actually read it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking a lot of times we don't ever find the wisdom is because complacency, laziness, I just don't want to take the time to do it and just accept whatever somebody tells me. Right. That's exactly right. That good segue to my next point. The other way we keep the Bible at arm's length is laziness. We just don't get around to it. We don't want to do the work. We don't have sufficient data because we've never exposed ourselves to what the Bible teaches. And we really don't want to do the work to dig it out. We live in a culture that lives on entertainment. We live for entertainment, 
We love to be entertained. That's why we exist, is to be entertained. And so if studying the Bible is not fun, then we're not interested. And it's a kind of intellectual laziness. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. We're called to be students of Jesus. Jesus didn't come into the world to be fun. He came into the world to be our Lord and to be our teacher and to teach us about God and about ourselves and about what God is up to in the world. He's a, as Paul puts it, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and understanding in Jesus. It's there for us to get if we'll go get it, if we'll go learn it, if we'll go master it. But we have to go get it. And that's not always, that sometimes takes discipline, it takes energy, it takes work, and sometimes it isn't even fun. Going through passage after passage after passage of where that particular Greek word is used because you're not sure what that word means, and you have to figure out what that word means in order to understand this statement here. It can be tedious, it can be wearying, but it's absolutely indispensable to understanding the Bible. I got a book just this week. I've read about half of it, and he's confirming what I have suspected all along. Basically, the thesis of this book is we don't know as much about the Greek of the New Testament as we pretend that we do. We've got to learn it. We've got to study it. We've got to keep doing research. And how are you going to learn the Greek of the New Testament? By studying the New Testament and understanding it in its context and understanding the arguments and so on. Now, let me back up. Not all of you are going to do that. Not all of you are called to do that. That's fine. God has given you a unique life, a unique calling, a unique role. If you're not meant to be an exegete and a translator, then don't be an exegete and a translator. That's fine. You will have your own particular way of focusing on how do I master what it is that this New Testament is teaching. You'll have your own way of going about doing that. What I'm talking about is not be what I am. I wouldn't want you to be what I am for all kinds of different reasons. I wouldn't want you to be that. But whoever you are and whatever God has made you to be, what I'm suggesting is that you be motivated to make sure that you make the Bible your own, that you master what it is that the Bible teaches. Well, better yet, that it masters you, that you become so acquainted with it, you grasp it so well that it becomes the lenses through which you look at the world. Far too many Christians, the Bible is out here at arm's length. The lenses I'm wearing are the lenses that everybody else in my culture is wearing. I believe everything that everybody around me believes. I like what they like. I value what they value. I say what they say. I parrot what they say. And those become the language and the concepts and the eyes through which I look at the world. And I turn over here and I look at the Bible the same, through those same lenses. You're not going to understand the Bible if you're looking at the Bible through those lenses. You have to get in, grasp what the Bible is saying on its own terms, from its own standpoint, from its own perspective, in its own language. Grasp it. Make it something that you imbibe. And then it becomes the lenses through which you look at all the rest of reality and all the rest of life. That's what we're called to. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, however you do that is going to be an individual journey for you. And you may need to rely upon other people who do the research and who do the exegesis and do the translation and so on. But don't treat your teachers as TED talkers. They're not there to give you a TED talk. They're there to help you learn, to help you master it. They're not entertaining you. They want to teach you, hopefully. If they're not wanting to teach you, they're not worth their salt as a teacher. But all too often, again, how does Christian culture look at their preachers and their Bible teachers? Oh, that was boring. That didn't entertain me enough. And what we usually use a religious term, I wasn't blessed by that. But what we meant is I wasn't entertained by it. Okay, so you weren't entertained by it. But did you learn something? (laughs) Were you challenged by it? Were you cut to the quick? That's the other thing is... Look at the nature of this truth that we're dealing with. It's an obnoxious truth, not flattering. It puts me face to face with my unworthiness and my depravity and my sinfulness. And in so many ways, it makes me uncomfortable. Well, you rarely talk about somebody who made you feel uncomfortable as, well, that really blessed me. (laughs) No, that really cursed me is what it did. 
But the good news is, beyond the curse is the hope. That's why the gospel is the gospel. But we need to learn why and how and what are the ins and outs of that hope that the gospel proclaims to us. And we're not going to learn it without reading our Bibles and understanding our Bibles. The statement that it will look as even the elect could be deceived or, or misled is really a very challenging, very frightening thing. And it seems to go along with what you're saying here about wisdom. I say that because most recently, college, it was, uh, I don't know if you encountered this, but it was the middle way. And I had a friend who used to always talk about the third way and the middle way. And anybody who landed was an ex- on a way was an extremist. They were an extremist on the right or an extremist on the left. But have you ever considered the middle way? And most recently, I encountered this in an interview with a person claiming to be a lifelong Christian. But there was a selective syncretism. There was a, a synthesis that this guy has created from various ideas, from various competing worldviews and conflicting worldviews. And so what he's done, he's taken the high points, the most attractive points of Christianity and said, well, that's what I believe. That's what I represent. And then he weaves into that fabric some of the more attractive points of these conflicting philosophies and competing philosophies. So he has this Christianity, which is loaded with non-Christian ideas. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is that the sort of thing we can expect because you get this compliment that, yeah, Christianity is great. Jesus love. He's always all about love. But there's no restrictions. In his, no, no, there's what? no restrictions. There's, there's no. He, he does talk about the psychology of self righteousness with great deal of understanding. I think that part's worth listening to. But he goes from that to almost do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anyone, and it, it weaves together so seamlessly as he talks. I could see even the elect being fooled by him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John in First John warns them: no lie is of the truth. And first time I read that, I went, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> Brilliant, John. But when you stop to think about what he's saying, is exactly that. When you've taken something that's rooted in a false worldview and abstracted it, what you don't realize is the roots of that worldview are coming with it. So if you incorporate that in your Christianity, no lie is of the truth. It doesn't belong there. It's not a part of the coherent worldview of biblical faith. So it's not harmless, It's not a harmless mistake when we take the various high points of those various myths that our culture believes and those other worldviews that our culture embraces, and when we try to weave them into our Christian faith, we are destroying our Christian faith. We are undermining it. We're not aiding it. We're not helping it. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't truths out there that you can't learn from other sources. There are, sure. But we have to make sure that those truths are rooted in the biblical worldview ultimately, not in that other worldview. I'm not sure this is really a pertinent question, but I think the thing that surprises me the most looking at cultural Christianity is hearing Christians saying, I believe in God, but my God wouldn't do that to me. And if God did that to me, that's not a God I can believe in. And it's just really disturbing to me to that kind of mentality where God is loving, God is good. So I guess my question is, if you could address how do we as believers really head-on face the reality that God is willing to sacrifice us, our happiness? What is going on when God sacrifices us? And by that, I think I mean our reality, what makes us happy. He's taken something away. He may take our life. What is the most sober thing we need to get our head around to be that courageous, that fearless, that believing, so that when God might come to me and say, I'm going to sacrifice you for whatever, maybe something that wasn't a cause I believe in, but is nevertheless going to do something good through that. Can you just give me us perspective on, because maybe I'm not saying it right, but I think of it in terms of coming to the reality that, yeah, God could sacrifice me. He sacrificed my happiness lots of times. So the thing that we're looking at is him taking our lives, our families, our everything. Mm -hmm. So could you? Okay, I'm not sure at what level to answer the question. Very simply and straightforwardly, if we have grasped the biblical worldview, then it would make no sense. The claim, 
my God wouldn't do that, would evaporate. Because if we've grasped the God of the Bible, if we understand who the God of the Bible is, we understand right up front that this reality is not about me. It's about God doing his will. It's his will being done. There is a good, and all things work together for that good. But that good is not my good, necessarily. It's the good. God is doing a good thing in human history and in created reality. And as he accomplishes that good thing, everything that he does, everything that he creates, everything that he scripts is contributing to that good that he set out to accomplish. Now, the question is, how am I situated with respect to that good? There are two kinds of people. There's the person who goes, God, I want you to do the good that you have set out to do, whatever that means and whatever that costs me. That's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Frankly, personally, I prefer to forego the cross, but not my preference, but your will be done. So we can either imitate Jesus in that regard, or the other way we can be is, damn it, I don't want the good. I want my good. So don't give me your good crap. I want my good. And we can take that position. But that's not a good place to be. (laughs) That's not where we want to end up. I agree. And to have that perspective, I think, takes the miracle of faith. It does. But it sounds, and this isn't a criticism, but it sounds very altruistic. It's like, okay, I want your will. But maybe to make it more psychologically personal, I think it's still possible to be a believer. How do you say in one breath, I know God loves me, and he's about to sacrifice me for this cause, his cause? Yeah, I just uh, see. The Bible doesn't teach that God loves me. That's Christian culture. That's the God we want. What we want is a God who affirms me. We want the God who thinks that I am just so adorable and so cute that I'm willing to send my son Jesus to die for you, Jack, because you are just amazing. I love you. That's what we prefer. That's the God that we would prefer. What the Bible teaches is not that God loves me. What the Bible teaches is that God loved me. God acted. God sent his son to die for the sins of the world that each and every one of us who believe might have eternal life. It was not God's subjective disposition toward me. It was his concrete act in history that was his love. He demonstrated his love by sending his son to die. Now, did he like me when he did that? Well, I think what Paul says is not really didn't really like you. You were at enmity with him. You were his enemy. No, he didn't like you, but he promoted your well-being. He acted in such a way that you might be saved. Well, that's love. Love is an action, not a subjective disposition that God has. But we prefer the latter. We prefer that subjective disposition because every cotton-picking movie we go to, somebody ends up loving somebody, and the love they have for them is their salvation. It saves their life, right? Well, that's what we want. We want somebody to save me psychologically, emotionally, personally, by loving me, affirming me, telling me I'm important, telling me I'm significant, telling me I'm the center of their universe. And so we want a God who will put us at the center of his universe. Well, that wouldn't be the biblical God. The biblical God comes to us and says, I'm God, I'm the center of the universe, and I have a role that I want you to play. And if we at that point balk and go, well... I was kind of seeing myself as the center of the universe. We're not understanding yet who this God is that we, I think where you're going for, is there any advantage then of letting God do with me whatever he will do with me? Will he just annihilate me and call it good? No, I think we have the promise otherwise. Anyone who desires the kingdom of God is going to get the kingdom of God. Anyone who desires that God's will be done is going to be among those people who are enter into the eternal blessing. That's the promise. But the dilemma is you can't want the blessing for the sake of the blessing. You've got to want God's will to be done for the sake of God's will being done. Only then am I the kind of person who's learned what it means to submit to God and therefore to be rightly related to God and therefore deserve deserves not the right word, to be fit, to be blessed in the way that God has defined. Can you just bear with me one second? Okay, so I agree with everything you're saying, and I think that that is an appropriate response to the church out there. 
But to a mature believer who can say, your will be done, not mine, if they're facing, sorry, being beheaded, there's going to be a psychological battle going on. And as a sober believer, I just think that there could be all kinds of doubts and fears. And I think that there is real ground that we need to know, despite what is going on and what it looks like, God loves me. And this is his plan. And he may be sacrificing me, but it is... I just don't think current Christian believes that God will sacrifice them or can sacrifice them. And so, you know, what does a mature believer facing that crisis of life know? Okay, God might sacrifice me, but he still loves me. And I'm Mm -hmm. At the end of Romans 8, shall anything separate us from the love of Christ? No, not the sword, not famine, not nothing. I may die, but my death is not me being forsaken by God and by the Christ. I'm not being forsaken. It's all part of, it's the way that God has chosen to love me. I always marvel at that passage where Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, and after that he has nothing more than do to you. <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> stop. Can we talk about that further? But, but he's just so cavalier about it. Don't fear the guy who all he can do is kill you. What are you worried about? All he can do is kill you. Your fear should be of the one who can cast your soul into Hades. That's what you need to be afraid of. And what the wise believer knows is death is not the end. Death doesn't end my existence. It just is a transition in my existence from this particular here and now to eternity. And if I really... The problem is a lot of Christians don't actually believe that. They believe it as an abstraction, as a theological doctrine that we talk about and that we tell each other, but they don't think it's actually reality. It's not going to actually come into being. Well, a mature believer knows that it's reality. No, you can kill me, but that doesn't end me. And when I know that and know that eternity is going to be so much better than now, as Paul puts it in Philippians, for me to live, he's in prison, threatened with execution. If I live, I live for Christ. For to me, to live is to serve Christ. To die is gain. That's his perspective. Thank you. So this conversation has reminded me of a phrase that's been almost like a jingle, but not really. I'm sorry, almost like a what? I said almost like a jingle, but not really, because it's not that catchy, I don't think, or lighthearted. But it, this conversation has reminded me of it, and I'm going to say it and ask what feedback you have. And that is that it's, the question is not so much, does God love me? Although I agree that that's an important question, and it deserves attention and all that. But So the question is not so much, does God love me, but do I love God? Does that, what do you think? I think that's fine. As far as it goes, there's more that can be said. Yes. The distinction I was making in the question, does God love me, is a distinction between there's two senses in which I could be asking that question. Does God have particular kinds of subjective feelings toward me is one way of hearing that. The other one is, is God committed to my well-being? That's a different question. And that we can answer adamantly. For those of us who love God and who are called by God, yes, absolutely. He's committed to my well-being. He's been committed to my well-being from before the foundation of the earth. So absolutely, he loves me in that sense. Does he like me? Not always. It's just, the Bible's just not concerned about those issues. We are in this era of romanticism where we turn everything into romance and everything becomes a psycho-emotional feeling that we are striving for. We want desperately to be so significant and so important that we make God infatuated with us. That's what I'm rejecting. That has nothing to do with that. But is he committed to my well-being? Absolutely. But And that's not an unimportant question because that's the basis for my belief. And that's what I believe. That's the content of my belief. But as I will, one of my points coming up in the notes is the other thing we need to pursue is the love of God. That needs to be my focus. That doesn't come naturally to us. And we need to learn to love God. We need to nurture and do what we can to promote the love of God in my own heart, my own spirit. So yeah, that should be our focus, clearly. So I know what I ought to feel. I know that I want God's will. 
I want his will to be done. And yet, there are things that come up in my life that I want, emotionally want. I have a friend who has cancer, is radiation now, but, and I've thought a lot about this in the last weeks when he's having surgery and stuff. I think built into us is a desire to live, you know, not to die, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what God built into us. We value life. So my desire would be not to die. If I had cancer, I want to stay alive. I want to live. And yet I want God's will for me. And it seems like the emotion becomes more powerful than the choice. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I want God's will if it's not going to be what I want him to do for me. But yet I still believe that I want ultimately God's will. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a real distinction between making that decision and feeling like I want God's will. Absolutely. Yeah, very important distinction. That's a great point. Because oftentimes what we hear being said is we need to learn how to not have those desires. By our standards, if Jesus were more spiritual in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, well, I can hardly wait to be tortured to death. This ought to be a different experience. And No, he was terrified. That's the human thing to be. Every one of us would be. The issue is not what we feel. The issue is what do we allow to govern the choice that I make? What I know I really want or what I feel like I want? And wisdom will be able to go with what I know is true and know is good and know is obedient, even though every fiber of my being doesn't want to do that. I'm feeling from deep in the core, no, 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 no. And that feels like rebellion. Those feelings feel like rebellion against God's will. Okay, but they're not. not. Yeah, and that's the important thing to realize. That's just being human. That's just being what God made me to be. There may be some desires that we nurture and are rebellious, but fearing death is not rebellion. But what are we going to do when push comes to shove? My prayer is, God, when it comes time to die or be tortured or whatever, don't give me a choice. Take it out of my hands. (laughs) So quick point of theological distinction then. Would you say at all that that desire to die or those emotions that we have, you just said they're not a part of what maybe our sinful nature? Is that what you're saying, that that's just human? Yeah, at least not necessarily. That's not exactly. something that we need to be forgiven of ultimately? That those I don't think so. Psycho-emotional feelings that we have that seem to run contrary to God's ultimate will? That's right, because otherwise what do we do with Gethsemane? Right, then you couldn't say that Jesus was sinless because he had those right. feelings. Right. Okay, good. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Jack, my mind is still back on Nazi Germany. Okay. You're getting slower. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and I'm trying to relate what you were saying about fear uh-huh. being the element that results in heading off into error. Relate that to the Lutheran Church in Nazi Germany. Because my experience with Christians has been more that it's not that Christians are afraid, they're arrogant in their adopting a particular tradition that they say, this is what is really true. And then what I'm thinking might happen in the United States is that the church will head off into error, as the Lutheran church did under the Nazi regime, not because people haven't made up their minds and are afraid to make up their minds, but because they have globbed on to tradition and the entity in power, like the Nazi government, decides to use the language, the terminology, and the psychological thinking that comes with subscribing to tradition as opposed to subscribing Mm. to the Bible Mm. and insinuate itself into the religious culture that way, with the result being that the religious culture, in this case the Christian Church of the United States or the Lutheran Church in Germany, ends up thinking that the authoritative entity and in power, the government, actually is on their side Mm -hmm. because they're speaking the same language. But I think that the problem is still the same, fundamentally, in that Christians have not chosen to really do their own, the hard work of understanding the Bible. Instead, they've simply listened to the pastor up in front for 30 to 40 minutes every Sunday and say, well, that's what's true. 
right there. I'm not even going to question it because this person went to seminary, he knows Greek, he knows Hebrew, or, and obviously he's authoritative. So it's not out of fear, and it's not out of not having made a decision. They really have made a decision. It's been the wrong decision with regard to tradition. And I'll even hitchhike off of what you were saying maybe a little bit too, where the choices made to follow the commentaries, let's say, that have been popular and the popular teachers and to, and to say, well, this is what the Bible is actually saying. It's because these commentaries say what it's saying, not because I've really thought it through and I can confidently say that this is what the Bible is saying because I've studied it myself. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. Would you agree, though, that why ultimately do people make the decision to follow tradition? Isn't it a kind of fear? That, yeah, the climb into the psychology of that is, <laughs> okay, I'm going to equivocate here. I don't know exactly. Okay. There might be fear of what, if someone is subscribed to tradition to the extent that they're willing to ostracize heretics who are choosing to study the scriptures themselves and to come to their own conclusions, what are they really afraid of? What would you say? Well, it seems to me that they're afraid of is being, by the herd, being called different being singled out, being marginalized, being an outcast. They're afraid of the names that are going to, you're a troublemaker, or you are backslidden now, or Satan's really insinuated himself into your life. There's all kinds of things that people say that they sting. The real pain of persecution, I think, is the misunderstanding, is when people say things where it's very clear, they don't know at all what makes me tick and what's motivating me. It hurts to be misunderstood, I think, and we're afraid of the misunderstanding. So rather than make myself subject to that misunderstanding, I just go along, and then I don't even... Let me just add one more, offer one more, and that is, is that in the midst of that fear, there's also the fear of losing power. I think yeah. of the Pharisees and the scribes yeah. Yeah. in Jesus' day. There's the fear of losing the power of being the accepted religious culture yeah. within whatever society. The, yeah. The, that, yeah, that's that a great point. Religious culture. Yeah. So there's power involved in that too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened to the Lutheran church. Those yeah. guys didn't want right. to give up their power right. of saying we are the leaders of the Christians in Germany and that we may end up seeing the same thing in this mm-hmm. country too. The, great the, point. The, I want to encourage everybody to Bible study by giving a short testimony. First of all, it all begins with my wife. She says, you're just a jackpot. You'll believe whatever he says. So that spurred me on to like go investigate things for myself to make sure, check you out, make sure you're doing... How that. are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> just like that Calvinism. <laughs> but so I got this weird idea that in order for me to study the New Testament, I had to learn Greek and I had to go... Th- learn all the skills and all that stuff. So I set about doing that, and I've been doing that since, for, oh, for a long time. I've translated six books of the Bible of the New Testament. And one of the books I've translated is Ephesians, and I've done that three times, and I'm still not satisfied if I've gotten it right. So you know, we're doing that book in our men's group meeting, and you translated Ephesians. And I looked at your translation, and I went, my translation, Jack nailed it. <laughs> After all of these years... It's been within the, the past month or so that I finally realized that I had it backwards. I thought the way you come to understand the New Testament is you go, you get your Greek tools, you look up all the words, or you translate them from Greek into English, and you're done. And I found out that it doesn't work that way because you're not really after, you're not really trying to decode the text. You're trying to understand what the author meant to say. It took me all this time to realize there's more value in actually coming to know what the author meant to say. And you don't get to it through the Greek text. You get through it by thinking about <laughs> using your clues. You've got two sentences back to back, and they don't make sense together. And you're, before, it was easy just to gloss over that and move on, you know, keep reading. But having that innate curiosity, why does this seem to contradict this, and then, run, and then chasing down the answer, that's more valuable. So I want to encourage everybody... <laughs> Read your Bibles and think about it, and think about it when you're doing gardening or doing the kitchen activities or whatever you do during the day. Think about it and ask questions, and you'll get more out of your Bible study than learning all the Greek tools and all that stuff. You can use your teachers. We've got some great teachers here as a resource, but just think about what it says and try to make sense of it. And if you can't make sense of it, get advice, but think about it. That's basically all I have to say, but I'm trying to help. I think 
it's really easy to, for us to say, I don't think I can do Bible study because I read over it and my eyes gloss over, I fall asleep, I can't really get this, I don't understand it. And I remember my first attempt at really doing Bible study, my trick was I'd read the Bible backwards. I know it seems silly, but I would start with a book and I'd start with the last verse, I'd read that verse, then I'd start with the second to last verse, I'd read that verse. And why did I do that? It's because it was my way of trying to train myself to focus on the text, not just read over it, gloss over it, and go on, but spend time. You don't have to study the whole Bible. Focus on a paragraph at a time and try to understand that and don't leave that until you got it and then move on. I know it's long-winded, but hopefully it kind of is encouraging. The account in Luke where Jesus at his bar mitzvah is in the temple pumping the rabbis with questions. And obviously he's been, he has a vested interest. The scriptures are talking about the Son of God, and that would be him. So he would like to know who he is and what his destiny is and what his role is and so on. So he's vitally interested, but he obviously, he doesn't know all the answers. So he's going to these rabbis, okay, how do I think about this and what's going on here? Most of us are not going to take a book and study a book and translate a book and try to understand the whole book, but we've got questions, And what can engage you is when you want an answer to your question. And so you find a verse here, a sentence here, that seems like it might have something to do with your question. And that's when you look at it, and you ponder it, and you ponder it, and you dream about it, and you try to solve the problem of what on earth is the saying, really. And that's, of course, is going to take you to a larger context, which is going to take you to a larger context. And before you know it, you've studied the whole book. But you have a live question that's driving your inquiry. And that's where most of us are going to be, and that makes all the sense in the world. There aren't too many of us who are going to just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to study and translate the book of X right now. Yeah, the, the thing you said about laziness. For me, studying and understanding the scriptures has not been an easy thing. And there's been lots of times in my life where I've had to make painful decisions that what I've believed currently wasn't right and had to change my mind. But the alternative, I, I think um, a lot of people that I've known who've followed an ism, you know, they were sure a denomination or a person, and then they've become disillusioned and rejected Christianity entirely, and, and that's a really bad place to be, mm-hmm. and it's a lot better to just struggle along and never be sure that you got everything right and just keep on working on it, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Just so I'm being clear, let me try to focus this. The the person I have in mind that I think we don't want to be, I'm not picturing the person who's not studying their Bible, because that's almost all of us. The person I'm picturing is the person who, when confronted with a question, doesn't care enough to want to find out. See what I'm saying? They wax indifferent. Yeah, well, it's not that important. So there's different points of view, and I'll just let there be different points of view. That's okay. They're just people don't agree, and I don't really care. I don't really care. That's what I'm wanting us not to emulate, is to be the kind of person who doesn't care enough that I won't put in the work and the energy, whatever form that takes in my life, to find out, to get an answer, to come to an understanding that satisfies me both intellectually and spiritually. Because I don't see how we can be a student of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and ultimately be able to say, yeah, Jesus said something about that, but I don't really care. I don't really care what he said. That's incongruous to me. I don't understand how that could go together. Enough? Okay.